up, guys? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Connor Brown. Many of you will be familiar with Connor. For those of you who aren't, Connor is a student at Stanford Law. He's also, of course, a hardcore Bitcoiner, and he's put out some great uh, writing on the subject recently. Two articles in particular. One is called Bitcoin Has No Intrinsic Value, and That's Great. Another is called Stop Calling Bitcoin Deflationary. And these are two uh, arguments or topics that come up a lot with critics of Bitcoin. And uh, so I thought it would be fun to have Connor come on and explain them in more detail and then have us kind of dive in into them a bit more deeply um, so that I can understand them better and hopefully it brings some clarity to you as well. Um, it was a real pleasure to speak with Connor. He's so switched on. He's educated, insightful, informed, thoughtful. Just a real pleasure to uh, to jam with for, for a while. So we spoke for about two hours on this portion of the interview. This was the open you know, conversational portion. If you want to hear the rapid fire portion where it's just a sequence of questions and then some word associations at the end, that, of course, is available now as well. That's it. Enjoy. How's it going, man? It's good, dude. Just uh, in school, chilling, listening to a lot of Bitcoin stuff. <laughs> like all of us. I was just thinking. So I got home uh, two days ago and uh, haven't seen anybody yet, like friends or anything. It's Friday night, right? It's, qu- it's quarter to six on Friday night. And I'm like, there's no place I'd rather be than, you know, sitting at my computer talking to somebody about Bitcoin, which <laughs> like, I don't know if that's a good or a bad. Th- I mean, obviously, I think it's a good thing, but, you know, it's definitely a weird thing. But here we are. It's it's wild. It's really wild. It's um, the Bitcoin rabbit hole can almost be like isolating in some ways because you just can't talk to people about it in depth and you want to. And I don't know. Well, man, that I mean, that's a huge part of the motivation for, for me doing this pod. Like I was piecing together these conversations over the years just, you know, when I had the opportunity and it just got to the point where you just you feel the need to have the like you're you're consuming all this content material right and you're 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 having all these thoughts and you're having all these like mind exploding realizations (laughs) about stuff you're like fuck i need to talk to somebody about this shit and like you try to talk to somebody in your normal life and you know they're just looking at you and blink it with blank stares and like holy fuck john is really messed up isn't he you know so yeah no they they feel bad for you (laughs) yeah exactly so the the beauty of bitcoin twitter when you happen upon it it's like holy shit these i found my people like i can finally communicate with somebody it's really weird and i don't know it's it's definitely left me frustrated with my like outside of bitcoin twitter (laughs) it's um I don't know. It's it's hard to go back from these massive ideas to just sort of like everyday small talk for like long periods of time. It's hard. Yeah. yeah and you don't want to seem but, like a dick, right? Like you don't want to go no. to social events and be like all high and mighty. Like how no, come you, you fucking idiots guy. don't know about Bitcoin? You know? Yeah. No, you can't do that. Yeah. But um, you're pro- like, I, I definitely was that guy for like a very small period of time. And then I was like, this is just not. This is not going to happen. Like, you can't red pill people. Like, you can't just, like, force them to... No, you realize very like, very quickly yeah. that there, that's, like, that's kind of a dead end, which is why so much of the conversation these days, or part of it at least, is, like, you know, trying to... Well, first of all, deciding should... Is it a worthwhile endeavor to even try to red pill people and try to, you know, foster adoption? And if you if you think that it is in some capacity, then, yeah. you know, what's the best way to do that? And... I'm starting, for me, it's starting to kind of coalesce that more so than, because nobody wants to hear me go on like a history of money, you know, two hour tangent at a social yeah. event or something. But people, yeah. I'm finding 
the thing that people respond to the most is obviously, you know, the life you construct for yourself. People see that and they, you know, if they like certain elements of it, they'll be curious about it. But for me, it's it's enthusiasm. Like people respond to enthusiasm and they may, they may think you're overly enthusiastic, but <laughs> enthusiasm definitely has kind of an infectious sort of thing to it. So that's kind of where I... I hang out now. If if I allow myself to go down there, if I'm with a group of people that I know there's just going to be no like play at all, then yeah. I don't even bother. Yeah, I don't even bother either. Yeah, yeah, but I think that I think that's true. I think um, relentless positivity and just like I don't know. I, I also feel like there's there's some level of just like a lot of people know something's fucked up, and they don't really know how to articulate it. But it's sort of in the the broader consciousness that like something is wrong and then sort of just like going down that and then like mm, if only there was something that could uh prevent this from happening and, and you like kind of just riffing on that i think is one way of doing it like starting with a problem first but it's not easy it's no never easy. like i mean yeah. it's just it's just so every you know problems of the nature that are occurring in society today and that you know we often discuss on bitcoin twitter or on these podcasts they're so multifaceted you know and there's so many uh variables in them that it's you know it's really hard to have a discussion with somebody who's probably on some level emotional about it right whether it's disenfranchisement or whether it's uh, unemployment or whether it's yeah. you know whatever the issue is like there's 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 probably an underlying emotion that's actually in most people fairly strong and if you just try to like go in and tell them that their assumptions on which they're basing this emotional reaction are incorrect or misplaced they're not you know it's hard to overcome the immediate kind of rejection of that uh approach yeah so yeah but you know like like is always said i mean this shit i mean who would have thought in 10 years almost 11 years we'd be here so it doesn't. It doesn't need us cheerleading for it, you know. No, it doesn't. I mean, this is just the natural effect of it, and this is just part of the exponential network effects as they continue. However, that being said, yeah. fuck that shit. I'm definitely cheerleading for this because <laughs> I like it, and I do. You know, I, um, the, the the aspect of being historically right. I'm gonna let my ego have that one, and I'm gonna I'm gonna. You know, I'll ha I'll be happy to hang my reputation on that one. And if we're wrong, then whatever. But if we're right, I'll I'll take the pat on the back. I don't mind. Do it. you ever think of your Twitter feed as like this nice little gym that you're like creating, and you're gonna look back on it in 20 years and be like, <laughs> mm, interesting prediction. Mm, I, yes, I haven't. It's almost like I saw this coming. <laughs> I haven't thought about it in those terms, but now I will. But I have <laughs> thought about it in like creating a little like bitcoin twitter toilet book you know of just like the best little maybe maybe even like explaining bitcoin through bitcoin twitter toilet book so like you take the monetary aspect or the network effect aspect or the you know value transfer over a digital protocol or whatever and like yeah. put the best like little tweet threads or individual tweets that people put out and just put it in a toilet book so people can just like page through it when they're sitting down having a crap yeah, just put it in a pamphlet and then put it in all these restrooms like across the across the country. Yeah, one shit at a time. A Bitcoin <laughs> adoption. <laughs> um, well, look, man. Thanks for uh, thanks thanks for coming on and doing this. I really appreciate it, and I've uh, I've been enjoying your your writing and your tweets and stuff like that over the last little while. And you know, usually I do these and they're pretty free flowing, but just because of the one the nature of the stuff you've written about and i think probably because i've gotten into a couple 
you know, Twitter spats recently on those exact subjects that I'd like to maybe, you know, spend a little bit of time at least initially on those yeah. and then we can see where that goes. But the two that seem to come up a lot and I think it's because, you know, you know, Peter Schiff and the gold bug, you know, people are always very vocal, you know, ironically very vocal critics of Bitcoin. Um, and the two kind of uh, arguments that they make is one, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. And another one, which is probably maybe a bit less common, but still comes up a lot, is that uh, it's deflationary and this has a lot of uh, negative effects, you know, for investment mm -hmm. and for savings and for wages and all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. um, maybe we can just start with your, and maybe your summary or your look, your view on this has changed since you actually wrote the articles. But for people that, that haven't yet wrapped their head around the Bitcoin has no intrinsic value argument, why don't you slap them in the face with, with your take on it? Yeah, so the intrinsic value argument uh, is generally waved around by someone like Peter Schiff, who says, you know, a real form of money uh, has to have some sort of use outside of money. That with something like gold, for example, the reason that gold is a good monetary unit is because we can use it in all these great ways. We can use it in dentistry and aerospace and uh, technology and computers and things like that. And because it has those industrial uses, that it therefore uh, has intrinsic value, value that is, you know, it part of the good. Um, and so I take that and flip that on its head. And I actually think that they've got it completely backwards, that those um, intrinsic use cases, uh, the fact that they can be used as commodities in other industries, actually is a net negative to the monetary value of an object. And that's because what you want uh, for a money is you want a type of pure monetary good. You want it to be uh, as, as clean as possible and as solely focused on its monetary uh, properties as possible. So when we talk about a money, we talk about something that's scarce, durable, verifiable, transportable, divisible, fungible, all of those good monetary characteristics that make something uh, a useful unit for communicating value. And gold has a bunch of those units, or ha has a bunch of those properties. So it is very durable, it's very scarce, um, it's you know got a nice value to weight uh, ratio. It has a lot of those uh, good monetary characteristics that is the reason why it has outcompeted other forms of money over the years, but it also has these industrial uses. And when you think of money, you think of money as a, a, a way of communicating value and a way of signaling prices, you want that communication uh, to be as clear as possible, right? Because just like a language, uh, you want your ideas to come across cleanly. Uh, you don't want there to be some interference in that communication. And so if your money is pure, it doesn't have outside industrial uses, something like Bitcoin, then those ideas are not distorted. They come across clearly. But when you have outside industrial uses, so for example, let's say we find some new industrial use for gold that was previously undiscovered, and we're using gold as how we're measuring uh, our prices, then that sort of industrial use can start to tug on that medium that we're using for communicating prices and sort of cause distortion throughout uh, our, our markets. And so my argument is that it's actually, you know, Bitcoin's uh, pureness, it's uh, lack of any outside commodity uses. The fact that it is just this digital ledger uh, will result in a much cleaner 
system for communicating value. Yeah. And I totally agree with that view. And I think even that's fairly in line with at least some of the the Austrians' view on money, right? Which is kind of weird why the gold bugs don't see it that way, because a lot of the gold bugs are Austrians or, you know, believe in the Austrian school. Right. Um, there's definitely, I mean, just from Mises himself, he said, you know, gold is kind of our least bad option. And, and specifically in, in the article, I reference a, a passage where he said, gold's good, but it does have industrial uses that do make it not perfect for communicating value. And it'd be great if we could use something that didn't even have these industrial uses. Yeah. Um, and I think that the fact that gold bugs kind of get hung up on this is understandable in the sense that, um, you know, this is what they've believed for so long. And there's that sort of confirmation bias that you want to look for uh, reasons to reject something new because you've held on to, you know, the, the past for so long. And someone like Peter Schiff, his entire career is around gold <laughs> being good. And um, it's it's really hard to let that go. I mean, it's it's really just a psychological thing, I think, at that point. Yeah. And I think guys like Peter Schiff and I had a back and forth with Roy Sabag, who's the, the CEO of of gold money uh, recently, mm -hmm. you know, we can't really be expecting these guys to have this debate in good faith. Their entire businesses, or especially in the case of Roy, but in the case of Peter as well, is predicated on a gold business, you know, so yeah. they're not going to just in a Twitter exchange be like, you know what, you're right, I thought about it, and you guys are totally right. So I don't, yeah. you know, I, I'm not holding my breath for either of those guys or people like them to change. But I think just in having these back and forth and with Peter, it's just, you know, it's kind of just, you know, fun, yeah. fun at this point. It's just absurdity, you know, and the, it the, is. the yeah. stuff that he, he says on Twitter and the stuff that people comment on. And, I you know, I'm part of that. You know, it's just for fun, really. But when it's actually a, a decent exchange about the merits of gold versus other forms of money and obviously Bitcoin, you know, I, I, even though I don't think they're going to capitulate, I like having them because obviously it sharpens my argument as well. And, it you know, if there's any holes in my way of seeing their side of the argument, then I'm interested in, in understanding what those are. But totally. I just, I think a lot of those people are, and like you said, it's understandable. I think they're overly romantic about it. You know, gold has yes. been this like, you know, uh, part, very important part of our history for pretty much all of civilization, you know, and like, yeah. if anything was important, it was you know, covered in gold. It was, they held gold. King Tut's stuff is in gold. Like anything that's like really valuable and amazing is in gold, but mm -hmm. it's still just a shiny rock. Like I hate to say it because exactly. I know everyone values it so much, but it's just a rock. And uh, with, with Roy, he said, you know, gold is money by design. And my response was no gold is money by happenstance. It has a certain, the attributes that gold has, makes it a better form of money for the, the functions that we desire of it than anything else that we could find in nature. And ultimately, we settled, you know, we, we, we came to a conclusion on the little dialogue with him mm -hmm. saying, um, I don't believe money can be created by man. It has to be created by nature. And mm -hmm. so, you know, with that kind of a divide, we can't really continue the, the debate with gold visa, you know, versus Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah it's, I, I think you're you're onto something really good there, the happenstance versus design portion, because gold happened to have the best monetary properties in nature. Um, and if we in our and, and that was really the brilliance of Satoshi and whether or not it was accidental or intentional, I don't know or really care. But um, the the fact is, 
when you, if, if you were to sit and think, okay, what are the monetary properties that make gold valuable? What is the, the actual logical reason for why this value accumulated gold? And you extract that and you say, okay, how do we improve every single one of these properties in a 10x fashion? You create Bitcoin. Right. And because you can apply human design to something that was already, you know, had good properties and you can understand those properties, then you have something that just blows it out of the water. Yeah. And I think a lot is, and you know, someone will get off of Peter Schiff in a moment, I promise. But someone like him always says like, well, what's backing Bitcoin? And he, he I don't know if people ever ask him, but like what's backing gold? It's certainly not right. the fact that people use it for cavities or fucking, you know, computers or whatever. Right. What's backing gold is its attributes and the exactly. energy required to extract it from the earth. That's what, exactly. that's what's backing gold. And what's backing Bitcoin? Its attributes and the work required to, you know, to bring it into existence, and then there's the 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 third part that, or you know, another aspect which I think gets discussed less because it's a little bit more vague, and maybe we can break into this a little bit. But mm -hmm. obviously, with money, there is a um, a social component to it, right? Yeah. So even yeah. even though the attributes inspire the confidence in a money people mm -hmm. still have to recognize it as such. And so with, with gold, it seems like it was kind of an emergent thing over time. With Bitcoin, I would say that recognition is far more uh, in, like overt or intentional. Have you thought about that component of it? I think that's actually a huge component of why they don't understand Bitcoin, because they believe that it comes from the social inertia or the recognition and, you know, I, I think it's attributes lead to recognition and that kind of creates this circular effect where people start using something as the most saleable good. Um, and because it has been, you know, thousands of years since we went from the attribute to recognition phase in gold, I feel like there's almost this like collective forgetting of why gold was even recognized as valuable in the first place. Um, and so with Bitcoin, we're seeing that, you know, kind of start again, we're seeing the attributes lead to the recognition. And I, I think you're definitely um, right that this sort of um, recognition phase can be easy to dismiss in the early stages because not enough people have recognized it yet. And I think that's also another common way to dismiss Bitcoin, which is, well, no one else believes it. And because Bitcoin is just a subjective belief that therefore we um, should just, you know, understand that it, it probably won't catch on. And I think that that's a, a very narrow um, view of, you know, kind of the, the way that these sorts of technologies exponentially are recognized as the network effects allow for new possibilities of human interaction. Um, so, for example, you could see the exact same thing with language. Language is a way of communicating subjective values and emotions, but ultimately languages are intersubjective channels of communication with real characteristics. And if my language was incredibly inefficient and a new language came along that allowed me to express myself in much better, more fluid ways to express emotions that weren't previously possible in my prior language, then over time, that language, the original, uh, shittier language would die off and the more efficient or more um, creative language 
or the one that allows a better expression of subjective values would come to dominate. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that thousands of times in history. And, you know, um, money is something that you can see that exact same process happening with, but it's much faster than something like a language because you just drop the old one and buy the new one instead of having to unlearn and relearn and, you know, all the messy stuff that would happen with something like a language. Yeah. So what, what do you think would be the response or what would happen? Or maybe, you know, maybe we've seen it in some capacity already, but let's say Bitcoin could be improved in some way, in some fundamental way. Mm -hmm. Um, And someone did that and launched, you know, launched a new network. What would keep, or basically what I'm trying to get, if if something better was created, what, what I'm trying to maybe bring about an example that actually showcases that the the social like the decision making the recognition aspect of this so if something better came along what would keep bitcoin from you know from being displaced by that yeah let's say something somehow is a 10x improvement in bitcoin in every way um that we can't even imagine right now because it doesn't exist right um and adam back has talked about this and i think he has a very good understanding of it which is that these the uh the utxo set of bitcoin the distribution of value amongst these people um, has created a table of shared recognition, a table of who has slices of this pie, and that if we do, because we now have a digital ledger of the shared recognition system, um, if there is some sort of 10x improvement, the best way to utilize that new 10x improved Bitcoin 2.0 would just be to transport the UTXO set over to the new one. Mm-hmm. So there you've bootstrapped the belief system because those people are already um, have the exact same property rights in the new one as they did in the old one, but you just have, you know, you can kind of swap out and uh, upgrade it, uh, which which makes a ton of sense to me. And um, I think that's how we would see some sort of upgrade like that moving forward, even if Bitcoin is the first iteration. So much value is just in the distribution of property amongst many uh, self-interested individuals. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's how it would go down. And also, I just don't, think you can replicate the immaculate conception of, of exactly. bitcoin i mean it's it's it now you know so it's going to be yeah. bitcoin or it's utxo set or probably yeah, yeah exactly it's, it's going to be that and in either case you like you hold bitcoin to get your ticket into bitcoin 2.0 or whatever it is right and any sort of, and and that's simply because like you said the immaculate conception um it is so hard to create organic growth it is so so hard and organic systems are naturally uh, anti-fragile. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, Taleb when he talks about the difference between a mechanical and organic system. And Bitcoin's organic growth over the past decade is just unbelievably difficult to recreate um, because those initial people had to go through those phases of disbelief and sell and redistribute and sell and it goes up and it redistributes and there's really no way to get such a great distribution compared to, all right, we created a new coin. We're not going to use Bitcoin's UTXO. We're just going to like pre-mine 70% of it like Ethereum or something. And you're just not going to get that same organic network effect. Um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, the only hope I think would just be moving the UTXO over. Yeah. Man, yeah. It's, so cra- it's so crazy that we're here 
at the time, you know, be, like you just said, the way that the organic nature of its adoption, when someone valued a Bitcoin at sub a, a penny, right? And then someone yeah. valued a Bitcoin at over a dollar. And then somebody, a group of people valued a Bitcoin at over 10. And we're, we're actually watching the emergence of a new money in real time. You know, it's like, yeah. I think that's why we're so crazy about it and that we, we want to have all these, you know, we want to interact with people, other people that see it because yeah. once you realize how significant this is, and actually I, I just read uh, Tur de Meester's uh, piece tonight. Um, I, I don't know if you've read that, but it was kind of comparing it to the Reformation. It's, it's on my list. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that was that was a special moment in time. I think will be far eclipsed by this moment in time. But the, the you know, the point that he makes is just that, you know, the emergence of of this thing will will create a very dramatic shift in the structure of society and, you know, yeah. how things function. And I mean, it's obviously very, very hard to predict how this will will play out. But just the simple fact that we're consciously and intentionally giving birth to a better form of, as you say, communicating value than we've ever had before is like, man, I get goosebumps just, just talking about it. I, it's crazy. And you want to run outside and just start shaking people <laughs> <laughs> and you can't. <laughs> um, but you know, um, it's, it's weird, man. And, and I feel like it's, it's also terrifying in a way. And, you know, with this, you know, I, I was just reading the sovereign individual again and that, that the book, I think, when Bitcoiners talk about it, we talk about how incredible this you know, new form of liberation and human rights uh, are going to be able to be expressed in this digital economy. But there's also some really terrifying parts of that book uh, because that transformation is a massive shakeup of power around the world. And it's hard to know exactly if that will be peaceful. And uh, based on who has stakes in the current game, uh, chances are it's probably not going to be very peaceful. And so it's it's weird. I, I feel myself just kind of struggling with two sides of it, especially seeing things like what's happening in so many countries right now, um, in Hong Kong and, and uh, in Lebanon and Chile and Venezuela and um, the Spanish independence movement in France and populism in the United States and UK. I mean, it's Something is bubbling and it's not going to come without a cost. And I think that eventually, you know, we're at this historical moment where, you know, this overreach and this sort of, um, I would say, this parasitic institution of nation states consistently just robbing their individuals and replacing their money with debt, that has to be digested in some way. And, you know, it, we have to get through that and kind of, um, let go of it. And I, I can't, there's, there's no way it's going to be pretty. Um, yeah. and I think Ray Dalio's piece was also pretty intriguing on that because, you know, he lays it out in very, very simple short terms. But the truth is given the nature of the, the nation state and the promises that are being made through debt, someone is like, not just someone, Many, many, many people are going to have promises that they've depended on for decades broken. Yeah, and it's going to be, it's going to be ugly. And luckily, Bitcoin gives us kind of like, I think, like a pressure release valve or a safety, uh, a, a a place that we can like find safety. But I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, y yeah. I mean, 
you know, Bitcoin is that car driving alongside the train that's about to run off the tracks, right? Yeah. And you're like, you're trying to jump onto the car as the train is going. Yeah. And look, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. But the thing that gives me at least some solace is that prior to Bitcoin, I saw the exact same thing, except I didn't, there was no car. It was just the train going <laughs> off the tracks, you know? And so, yeah, no, I, I, I had a tweet about this where I was like, I'm so glad I realized that our financial system is insolvent after learning about Bitcoin <laughs> because <laughs> it would have been really scary the other way around. Yeah. And I, I can't, I mean, like I knew, I, I think a lot of people have some sort of vague feeling that things are wrong but when you really run the numbers and you're like all right millions of people are not going to get their pensions how like when, when you really just look at the numbers it starts getting really scary yeah and um it's it's easy to not think about that yeah well i i realized things were fucked before bitcoin so you know I, i've talked about this before on the podcast but you know that has an effect on the way you see the world right and you're like yeah. well fuck how do i like how should i move forward with this sort of perception on things, notwithstanding that, you know, the perception no doubt is wrong in some capacity, but probably clear enough that you're in the ballpark of, of being correct. And, uh, yeah. and this is why so many people talk about when they, when they encounter Bitcoin and they work their way down the rabbit hole, that it actually, I mean, this is across the board. Bitcoin gives people hope. I mean, that this, yeah. that's like a, a oh, word totally. that just emerges in every conversation I have is that, yes, all the cool stuff and orange coin good number go up, everything like that. But it's it's hope, not just for you as an individual, but for everything. And, you're, you know, you're probably right, because it's hard to imagine how a smooth transition. But yeah, one, you know, hopefully at least like the scaffolding is being put up on the house that's getting torn down. And, you know, so yeah. there's some sort of support. And, I you know, I think it's probably pretty safe bet to say that Bitcoin is going to be scapegoated at some point, whether it's totally. destroying the environment, whether it's, you know, these people are getting rich on it, whether it's criminals hiding tax dollars. It, that's why the state, that's why we don't have enough money to fund your, your pension because all these people are avoiding taxes through Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff. So oh, I, yeah. I see it being scapegoated, but one, one of the areas where I diverge from most people that I've spoken to on this subject is, you know, obviously in Bitcoin, there's, Privacy is a huge thing, right? And a lot of yeah. people take that to the degree where they keep their, you know, they stay anonymous and they don't talk about certain things. And I totally get and respect that. But yeah. I think if we're going to have any chance at, at overcoming the attempts at scapegoating, you know, like we've got to be out there showing people who we are and what this is about. And, you know, maybe through all the different people that engage in media in this space and you know, all the people that talk, like maybe we can mitigate the degree to which Bitcoin can be scapegoated by saying, hey, no, like, that's not what this is about. This is about something else. You're, you know, you're being lied to, you're being misdirected. And I know maybe that's um, overly optimistic because we're dealing with very, you know, big forces here. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Can't help I, but try. I think that you're, I think you're definitely onto something there that I hadn't thought about as much, but you know, the privacy is, is very important in a way because no matter what happens, like, like you need both because the private people are kind of like, not necessarily the threat, but it's the proof that even if you want to do something, you can't do it because there are so many hodlers that are OPSEC magicians and they're not like you just can't get to them because you don't know who or where they are. And that's incredible. 
And no matter how much you try to take out the few people who are talking about it publicly, you know, Bitcoin is going to bootstrap itself privately regardless. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I do think uh, people who are more public, like myself and you, um, that's also very important because I think you're right. Like for the average person to latch on to these sorts of ideas, um, we're still monkeys and we still like to see someone's face and name and believe them. And it's a form of just very basic credibility that allows us to think outside of what Jerome Powell or Donald Trump is saying. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's a really good way of framing it, actually. And I, you know, you could you could compare it to coming out of the closet in a variety of a variety of different domains, right? Like whether <laughs> it's with homosexuality, and you realize, oh, my neighbor Bob is he's gay and he looks like a totally totally normal dude and he's mowing his yeah. lawn and he's just like me. <laughs> or, you know, um, I, I'm very much interested in in um, psychedelics and the work that's been done there over the last 20 years. And, you know, once you have people like Tim Ferriss and, you know, top entrepreneurs and Peter Thiel yeah. and all these guys coming out and saying, it, it's not about like getting super fucked up and hippie stuff. It's, it's about something more. And here's the science that backs it up. And this is why we do it. And you realize, oh, so people that are interested in this aren't just crazy hippies. They're actually top performers and, you know, insightful thinkers and all this kind of stuff. And it, that has an effect on how people perceive these things. So I, I, I think, yeah. you know, probably something like that should, is worthwhile or would be good for Bitcoin. Yeah, and makes the um, attack, if, if a nation state was to attack um, Bitcoin or go after Bitcoiners, it makes it more costly to their reputation. Right. Because you know, you know a Bitcoiner, he's a great guy, and he's, you know, talking about these very admirable missions of, you know, improving access to financial networks and things like that. And when you talk about, you know, the basic human rights Bitcoin provides, suddenly it becomes much less popular for someone like uh, Elizabeth Warren to scapegoat Bitcoiners as evil speculators or something like that. Yeah, totally agree. Loud and proud, baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the, the most recent article you did was Bitcoin is not deflationary, right? That's right. All right. Why don't you hit me with that one? So deflation is uh, a tricky idea, and I hear it mentioned uh, regarding Bitcoin a lot. Um, typically from people of, you know, they're pretty sophisticated. They are usually, you know, your Warren Buffett types or, or people that kind of, you know, they care about investing. They care about kind of the, the general economic outlook, and they have a basic understanding of economics, um, but they're not... Austrians and they're not down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and a common argument against Bitcoin is well It's deflationary and that deflation is sort of this evil boogeyman that we need to prevent uh, Because it would lead to some sort of economic catastrophe um, If prices started to go down and so I first wanted to just unpack the term deflationary um, Because it can be pretty messy when I think the average the the common understanding when you hear Jerome Powell um, talk about deflation, he's talking about uh, prices going down. And when he talks about inflation, he's talking about prices going up. And that's a messy definition because prices can, can uh, go up or down for a variety of reasons. And so when you talk about deflation as price levels, you're not sure if the prices are going up because of a, a change in productivity or a, a decrease in productivity or if there's a change in the underlying uh, monetary base, the way you're communicating those prices that is causing the prices to change. And so the first part of the article is saying, 
you know, to be really clear, we need to define deflation in terms of changes to the actual monetary base or monetary substitutes. Um, so, you know, like dollars in a fractional reserve bank, uh, because that allows us to understand why prices are moving because it is a, as a change in this, this, the, the unit we're using to measure prices versus, well, it just got a lot cheaper to produce these things. The so prices went down. So anyways, my, my first argument is saying, look, when you define deflation in a strict sense of is the monetary base changing, it's not deflationary. It's actually disinflationary because um, it is uh, scheduled to be a constant uh, over a period of, um, you know, 100 years or so, uh, like 2140, we'll have 21 million coins. And we're trying to get a constant monetary base. And this goes back to the idea of prices are a way of communicating value or your money is a way of communicating value, and that's accounted for in prices. And so you want that uh, method of communication to be constant. You want it to be pure. You want it to be not, you don't want it to be disrupted by uh, the the thing that you're using to measure. You don't want your metering, your meter stick to sort of like be moving around on you. You want it to be as, as nice and stable as possible. And so a nice constant monetary base is the best for communicating prices effectively. Um, and then I also address some concerns that, you know, well, what about the lost coins? Isn't that basically a form of deflation uh, over time because those coins are being taken out of circulation? And uh, my argument for that is, well, the highest amounts of lost coins are also at the highest. So the in the earliest days, we lost the most coins, presumably because people were, were reckless. They didn't have any sorts of good cold storage. Um, and, you know, there weren't sorts of... Um, ways that right now you can have like multiple backups of your keys or something like that. And you can have emergency plans. You know, those weren't really in place. And there's stories of people losing thousands of coins. But those big losses happen at the very earliest stages when lots of new Bitcoin is hitting the market every 10 minutes. And, you know, as we sort of level off and Bitcoin production slows down, um, we'll also get more professional in our custody custody and we'll be better at securing you know, large amounts of Bitcoin wealth. And so we'll also see the amount of lost coins kind of level off as well. And so we can see a nice equilibrium there. And um, the other is in terms of uh, population. That's another thing. Like, what if we just have like billions and billions of people and there's a smaller and smaller amount of Bitcoin relative to people. Um, and, you know, by the time Bitcoin levels off, there's, you know, based on our best population estimates, it's, predicted that population will also be somewhat leveled off by then. I think that one's less important and I don't think it's uh, as big of a deal, but it's an interesting, you know, kind of note that um, it's come up in like random arguments I've had with people. So I just kind of threw that in there. But that's the general idea of deflation in a strict sense of decreases in the monetary supply, not going to happen and Bitcoin's going to be good for communicating prices. Mm -hmm. Now that definition of deflation is contentious right like some people oh, very. some people define deflation as prices going down other people define deflation as the money supply shrinking let's say right, right? and so that that is you know if you can't agree on the definition when when we have these these conversations or these debates then we you know we can't even start to have them right totally and totally and, and you know i i fully expected that when i published the article and that's why you know, I continue in the article and I'm like, look, even if you're defining it as falling prices, let me tell you why falling prices under Bitcoin are going to be perfectly 
fine and natural uh, in the economy. Yeah. And how, how, what was the effect on prices, wages, and the operation of debt um, during the gold standard era, if you know? And how do you think those three things would be impacted by Bitcoin being, let's say, like the, the dominant money in a hyper-Bitcoinized world? Yeah, so uh, that's, that's um, so let me take each of those in turn. So the first is prices. Um, and, you know, we can imagine that because human product, humans are naturally creative creatures and we figure out new and better ways to do things all the time, productivity has just, you know, been an upward trend since the beginning of civilization uh, as we further develop technology and invest in better ways to do and create things, productivity increases. And because of that, we imagine that things, you know, because of that, things get cheaper to make. And if there's a competitive market and, you know, producers are trying to compete against each other to provide the best prices to consumers, then prices would, it would be natural to see prices decrease. Um, because it's easier to create stuff, you should actually be paying less for the items you, you get every year. And in some, you know, very growing, uh, quickly growing industries like electronics, we can actually see this, that despite uh, increases in the money supply and inflationary tendencies at the monetary base, there are such strong uh, gains in productivity for computers, for example, the price of com computers continues to go down and the quality of computers goes up. And, you know, what we're seeing in that industry is, you know, a very exaggerated effect of what we would see in just, you know, every sort of um, industry. Um, so the example I use in the article is a, like a toothbrush. You know, in the past 50 years, we've gotten better at making toothbrushes. Certainly, we've gotten better at shipping them and producing them, but the price of them has gone up. And so we can tell that there's something mismatched there. And so under uh, a Bitcoin standard, there would presumably be a mapping of productivity to prices because we now have this constant form of communicating with each other. And so we would we would be able to feel the effects of increased productivity because our money would go further. Um, the second one is employment and wages. And I think this is another one that people uh, love to trot out, which is oh my God, deflationary economy, you're going to see uh, prices going down and therefore workers' wages will be going down and people are going to get smaller and smaller paychecks and there's going to be riots in the street. And I think there's two, two big uh, problems with this. The first is that um, wages do not follow prices because wages is the price of human time. And human time is an incredibly malleable, creative, um, really impossible to reproduce substance. Uh, we're talking about artificial intelligence now, but even the very uh, best artificial intelligence is still extremely narrow. And it's still just, you know, true false functions that are able to, you know, really get good at doing a very, very specific task. And, you know, even the, the top people in the AI fields are like general intelligence. Uh, what a human can do is incredibly distant, and we don't even know if it's even possible. Um, so because of that, human intelligence, human uh, productivity, human uh, time is, is going to be something that you can't just suddenly make better. Um, you can't just like pump it out of a factory in a more productive fashion. You might be able to automate some things, but, um, you know, the, the same arguments that people had when they said, well, computers are going to make all these people obsolete, you know, we have more jobs than ever. 
and so I, I don't think it's true that we can assume that wages will decrease with productivity gains. And if anything, we'll find new and better creative jobs that you and I can't even imagine right now. Mm -hmm. um, and historically, we can see that's true. Um, while in the 1800s in America, we had this massive decrease in prices because we were more productive. Um, and we had we were sort of on this you know sound monetary standard for communicating prices. We saw wages double, and and that's also despite the fact that you know the labor supply was just like multiplying off the charts because so many people uh, were immigrating to America. So I think that's totally natural. And and the other thing is right now we're seeing this phenomena of sticky wages, which is that productivity will increase. Uh, but because the money supply is sort of uh, increasing as well and your your money is losing value, that wages will lag behind productivity. And, you know, people believe that this is a concept called sticky wages, which is that wages don't naturally adjust in the same way because, you know, there's different theories about why. Maybe it's um, it's it's hard to ask for a raise. It's hard to you know, negotiate with your boss. And it, it's not a perfect market where you're just buying and selling your time. Uh, it's these like sort of for, like social agreements that are sticky. And if that's true, which we have every reason to believe it is right now, then we would see a similar but opposite trend uh, where you would have sticky wages where wages stay high despite uh, prices going down. So even if there was a uh, pressure on prices in a downward direction, then you could imagine that sticky wages, that phenomenon would happen where, you know, it would be really hard for an, a, a boss to cut its employee's salary in the same way it's hard for an employee to ask for a raise because it, it's, it's a messy subject and uh, people would sort of lag, people's wages would, would lag higher than other prices or something like that. And so it would actually lead to people being happier with their wages. Um, so yeah, that's that's the general argument there. And then the last thing is, you know, even if there is a small decline in wages over a period of decades, like you're still seeing massive increases in purchasing power. So the amount of stuff, the the you know how far your money goes, that's still increasing significantly. And I think that that is much more important for workers' rights. And I think that treating them as if they're, you know, very simple-minded people that aren't able to understand this uh, is is really silly and paternalistic, and we should just um, go to whatever is going to be the best mechanism for communicating prices and allowing people to have a safe place to store uh, their time and energy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the the arrogance of thinking like even that you could assess. I mean. Not, not you, I mean, but people that try to control, yeah. um, you know, prices and, can, you know, influence the money supply, interest rates, whatever, to maintain a certain amount of inflation or deflation or whatever. Yeah. Like, the market will figure it out. If you have a, a, a monetary measuring stick that is market-driven, a la something like Bitcoin, that's sound, you know, a sound measuring stick, then productivity gains will mean lower prices, right? And maybe whatever happens with wages, it's what should happen. Maybe you only end up working 10 hours a week and your wage stays the same and you get to you get the benefit of the the increased yeah. productivity of, of, yeah. of what's going on. I mean, like, why are we why is everybody so worried about this? If you just let the market figure it out, it will it will come up with the best solution. And just think about 
the productivity gains that have been withheld from everybody by the manipulation of the money, right? By trying to keep in this narrow band of yeah. 2% inflation. Like, so that means that if productivity is such that it brought prices down dramatically, that that 2% 2, 2 inflation target is actually saying, no, 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 we don't want prices to go down too far. We don't want people to be able to benefit from the productivity gain. We want to keep it in a very narrow band of benefit. You know, so yeah, it how like how much over the last fifty years plus have have you know the world let's say people's lives been robbed of the productivity and wealth gains because of the way that the the monetary system is managed. I mean, it's it's crazy, and it's also crazy to think that despite all the technological advances and the productivity gains that that have come through them, that we still have price increases. Like you know, pri yeah. pricing around the you know everything today is is going up pretty darn dramatically you know like from year to year you can really tell the prices of most things yeah. are, are going up and yeah. to 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 imagine that that's happening with all the the technological breakthroughs and efficiencies that are making so many yes. of our data you know, the things we need in our day-to-day -day lives easier to produce that we're still experiencing price gains just shows you how like insane the manipulation and how detrimental the manipulation in the monetary system is Oh, one million percent, um, because you can imagine that if the productivity gains are significant and, you know, you could something like Amazon, like completely changing the way supply chains operate. Um, let's say that the real price, like if, if we had a constant monetary channel to communicate, it wasn't being distorted and we saw prices drop five percent because of that productivity gain, then an inflation rate of two percent is really saying, well, we're missing out on 7% right. of price changes. And so that infl the 2% the inflation number is really insidious because you're assuming that productivity stays constant, uh, where really if it's dipping lower, then you're even, not only are you adjusting so much that it's even, but you're adjusting even higher than that. Um, you know, who, who knows what the real inflation rate is? It, it could be you know, 10, 8, 10, 12% every year just factoring out the productivity gains. Yeah, and it's interesting to think how long this fiat money experiment could have persisted in an environment where perhaps innovation and productivity gains weren't as rapid as they are today because you, yeah. you the, the the felt experience of price increases would have been much more, right? The productivity gains that we're seeing today through technology around the world is actually you know making the the negative influence of fiat money less obvious. Even though right. it's, now it's, it's reaching a breaking it. point, yeah, yeah, it definitely is is offsetting it, and um, you know, kind of serves to cover it up a little bit longer because you can kind of wave the magic wand a little bit and say, "See, prices stay the same." And just the notion, and this is like you know, one of the the Federal Reserve's key mandates is that we need to ensure uh, price stability and maximum employment. But the idea that prices should be stable is just bananas. Um, there's no reason to think that prices being stable helps anyone aside from the people who are printing money. Man, it really makes you think like what, what kind of a world would we have if people weren't manipulating the money? If the, if the money was a purely free market sound money and that yeah. it could do its own thing dependent on market forces, like what, you know, how much abundance were the, would there be? What kind of a world would we have? Because it just, it's, it, the more you think about this stuff, the more it becomes clear how much, productivity and you know by extension you know uh, 
quality of life has been suppressed yeah. as a result of how the monetary system is managed. Man, we'd be in a flying cars right now, zooming <laughs> past each other. I mean, it's it's hard. It's crazy to imagine because these are exponential gains we're talking about, and yeah. like like, um, I don't know. It, it's it, in so many aspects of life. It's it's hard to imagine. It's it's hard to imagine what are you know. I was actually just listening to. Uh, this podcast called Strong Towns. I don't know if you've heard of it, no. um, but it's I, I randomly heard of it uh, on Bitcoin Twitter, and so it's this guy who's talking about infrastructure, and he's a civil engineer, and um, talking about how Keynesian economics and the sort of like centralized, top-down planning uh, that we see in our financial systems is also that same mentality spills over to how we plan infrastructure projects. And instead of having organic growth in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our roads, in our streets, uh, we do, you know, a multi-billion-dollar project uh, that we are convinced uh, is going to be super efficient and basically finance it with massive amounts of debt. And we believe that just, you know, the build, build, build mentality is going to lead to, you know, these massive gains in the future because we're investing big amounts in our infrastructure. And he talks about the fragility that that sort of thinking creates because, you know, just like manipulating prices, when that Keynesian logic is applied to, we need to build roads to stimulate growth, to attract new, you know, businesses here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it leads to a fragility because you can't predict the future in any situation. And that includes when you're building infrastructure and in your, your cities and your towns. And so, so many towns across middle America are just broke now, just absolutely bankrupt and getting worse by the day. Um, you have, you know, you call the police and your response time is measured in hours instead of minutes. Um, and it's just heart-wrenching, really, because of the arrogance of people thinking they can fully predict the future, you know, 20, 30, 40 years out, and that th this is a sustainable path uh, to investment. And, you know, it is hard to imagine what it would be like if, our towns and our cities and our communities could grow organically in this sort of anti-fragile way um, so that we aren't, you know, basically debt financing all of our future improvements that end up being roads that no one even uses um, or are jam-packed at nine o'clock and then empty it in the middle of the night. And, you know, all of that really didn't go anywhere. So. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, for sure. And you know, speaking about efficiency and productivity gains and all this kind of stuff. I mean, also consider how much inefficiency and how much uh, wastefulness has occurred as a result of central planning in, in all of its manifestations. I'm not just talking about you know socialist governments and examples of that through history, but just yeah. like you were just talking about central planning in in all of its forms on the local level all the way up to the national and international level where it's, it's people making decisions and assumptions and then deploying yeah. resources based on that rather than allowing, rather than having kind of an even playing field for the market to dictate where, you know, resources should flow and, and, and you know, how, how they should. And again, with Bitcoin, it seems like it's, it's, it's opening up this, this field of play where instead yeah. of it being dictated from on high anymore, where it's going to allow for, you know, it's this thing that nobody controls and it's creating a market where, you know, the incentives, the incentives are, uh, what's the, what's the right word? 
you know, the, the incentives are, let's just say better, for lack of a better word right yeah. now, that allow for these, these, these market forces and market dynamics to, dynamics to more uh, unobstructedly dictate how things should be, where value should flow, and what should emerge from that. Totally. And that was, I think, one of the big moments in my understanding of Bitcoin was just, un I mean, and it sounds so simple, but no one understands how powerful pricing mechanisms are. Because a price uh, communicates to every single person in the supply chain, it doesn't matter uh, what's happening. You know, I don't have to know that it was actually this fire in the rainforest that causes changes in the production of lumber that changes how expensive this chair is that changes. I mean, it, it just sends ripple effects. And so prices it's so cool. are just incredibly dynamic. And it's essentially like a, like a neural network without computers where you can signal to other people and, and have it, you know, take in the intelligence, the collective intelligence of every single person involved. And as soon as that fire happens in the rainforest, then the prices shift across the globe and suddenly other people are incentivized. Well, okay, wait a second. Now lumber is more expensive. So that means I could profit off the lumber that I have or I could start planting trees and they're going to be valuable even if it's in 50 years or something like that. They're, they're, this is all still able to be function or priced in um, through these mechanisms. And it's just so unbelievably beautiful. And I think recognizing that, recognizing this collective intelligence that is an emergent property rather than believing in the wisdom of a few um, people and just understanding no matter how smart the FOMC is, no matter how brilliant the central bankers are, even the smartest people in the entire world wouldn't be able to match the collective intelligence of billions of minds and billions of people in their incredibly localized environments making their own decisions and sort of pulling on that network and, and tugging at the different strings to allocate resources. Yeah. You know, it makes me think I, I heard Jim Rickard speaking recently and he's another, you know, gold dude who who's uh, not into Bitcoin and he has a very obvious sort of air of arrogance about him. But what he did say that I think is relevant to the point you were just making is, you know, they ran the, some study where you, you remember when you were a kid and they had like a jar full of jelly beans, whoever guessed how many was yeah. inside would, would get the jelly beans. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, the experiment was something like you could get like someone with a pen, like spending 10 hours just counting all the ones you could see and then inferring how many would be behind that and coming up with a, a prediction of, of how many jelly beans were in there. Or mm -hmm. you could ask a thousand people to guess. And the kind of emergent wisdom of the crowd of the thousand people guessing and then taking, you know, like the, the median or the average of that or something would be more closely accurate than the person who like tried to look at each one. Now I know that's wow. that's not a a perfect you know it's not a perfect example, but to your point about all yeah. the the various inputs about pricing and and the thousands of or more of inputs, um, it's it's it, like you said it's so beautiful and then to have to have some filter on that that's yeah. distorting it is just yeah. the, you know to me it's the it's the craziest thing in the world and of course like price touches everything. And money yeah. touches price, right? So how do, and I, you know, people in the Bitcoin community, uh, you know, are have been talking about this sort of phenomenon. I know, know in Safe's book, you know, he kind of made reference to, uh, I think back in the Renaissance era or during, under a gold standard where 
the work that emerges from a society that's you know predicated on more sound money is is more quality and it really makes sense when you look at it through that way when you know that everything that's produced in an economy has a you know has a price and every single price is related to the money that's used so how you know how would this wall that's behind me be different if it was if it was predicated on a money that was not manipulatable or not ma manipulated yeah. like maybe it yeah. would maybe it would have a more of a wood content maybe it would have less of this maybe it would be higher quality in that way yeah I, I, quality is a really interesting concept because um you know i feel like that's another form of inflation that is much it's not as talked about as much i think the the easier way to um handle inflation is not to raise your prices but just to decrease the quality of the goods that you get like uh, I use an electric razor and I have one from like six years ago and it still is better than anything I can purchase in the store. And I can't even like the newest models of the exact same razor. The new ones are just shit. Right. And they're this, they're the same price or maybe even a little bit higher than the one I bought six years ago. And I keep looking for a new razor and I can't find it. And it is infuriating because I, I just have to keep going back to the shitty one. Um, that's even like half broken and still works better than anything I can get in the store today. And I just, you know, I, I feel like this is a, a big reason for so much um, stress and anxiety and frustration in politics is that so many people just feel like they're just getting ripped off all the time. And it's so easy for a politician like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren point the finger at oh, well, it must be the, the thing that you're immediately receiving the goods from. It must be Walmart or it must be the razor company that is doing this because they're the ones that are choosing to raise prices, you know. And <laughs> that first step, like, you know, if you, that's a very, very tempting way to convince people because most people don't have an understanding of how prices work. Um, and that naive take on economics of, oh, it's, it's the evil razor company that's doing that. Um, not to mention they're doing it because, you know, their margins are razor thin and they're just trying to get something on the table. Um, Pardon the pun. Man, it's, it's so frustrating because, yeah. and, you know, Trump's no better, of course. He's saying it's the immigrants uh, and China and that, you know, it's everything but the fact that we're, you know, establishing these massive parasitic organizations in our society and we're hoping that nothing happens. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's frustrating, and um, I'm hoping Bitcoin kind of pulls the wool back from these people's eyes a little bit, um, and and maybe it will in the long run. It's 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 tough to know because it's it's so tempting to just yeah. take the easy road out. It's it, so tempting. It it gives me you know, and I agree, and I see all this crazy shit that like Bernie puts on out on Twitter and stuff, and you know. I can't I can't accept that he doesn't know better. So I you know, I feel like, you know, yeah. this is just this is just politics for him. He's preaching to the choir. He knows this is what's gonna get him support and I like I just wanna smack him in the face for being such a piece of shit about that. But cause like I, I actually tweeted at a, a tweet of to him today, but like pick up a history book. We know how this sort of pandering ends. We 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 know how things devolve when you say, Hey, those rich people need to be paying more. And we, like us, big group of poor people, we need more money and we need to pay for more stuff. So we should take it from them. Like, it's not new. 
this has happened many times yeah. throughout the course of history. We, wow. we, we know how it ends. And what they're conjuring up uh, is just not helpful. Like there's, I know it's going to be hard either way you sl slice it, like you said earlier, but approaching it in this way is not helpful. And the other one that, that kills me is the, the minimum wage, you know, where people talk about, oh, man. Um, we, you know, we need a need to give people a living wage and we need to increase it to $15 an hour or $20 an hour. And it's like, why not make it a hundred dollars an hour while we're just pulling things out of thin air? Why don't we make a thousand dollars an hour? Like, let's just do that. Then everybody's rich, right? Like, yeah. it, no, it's, it's such basic economics, but it's, it's so obvious why it's politically profitable. Yeah. It's so obvious. And, and it hurts. It, it is. I found myself just getting really stressed out. Like the more I thought about this stuff, it's just not healthy to even look at it because it's, it's so naive and it's it's so enticing and um i think that you know obviously bernie loves to play on this sort of fixed pie mentality like i mean it's just fundamental misunderstanding of wealth as a generative process and that bill gates can be rich and everyone else can be richer at the same time um and that productivity increases is just a concept that is foreign to these people and so they advocate policies of like you know, let's draw blood out of one arm and inject it into the other arm and spill some blood on the floor and everything's better instead of just, <laughs> you know, going and working out and making ourselves stronger. Yeah. And man, it's it's frustrating. You know, uh, one of the, one of the things that does give me hope, though, because I, I think you, you've said that you got into Bitcoin, in, what, in early 2018, something like that's that? That's right. Yeah, it yes. was mid mid twenty eighteen. Yeah, yeah, so that's not a fucking long time ago, man. And no. and now you're deep, deep, deep down the rabbit hole, and you're <laughs> contributing content, and you're having these conversations. So, like, people can be, you know, red pilled. People can change. Now, yeah. I know we're dealing with a, you know, a, a lot of people that need to have, you know, their mindset turned around. And very easy for us to say it from our positions of comfort, yeah. right? Our positions yeah. of relative comfort. You know, there's a lot of people. Uh, in society, obviously, that for various reasons, in some cases, themselves to blame, blame in other cases, circumstance to blame, but that, you know, uh, are in far more desperate circumstances than us. And as a result, you know, they're going to probably latch on to the thing that seems most likely to get them out of that situation as soon as fucking possible, right? So I sympathize, sympathize with them on some level, because I, I just can't, I know I can't fully appreciate the kind of uh, the anxiety and the stress and the uh, the difficulty of their situation. Um, yeah, but and, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, but as much as I sympathize and you know um, all that, it doesn't mean that the answer is different. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that you know you're right just because you want it or need it more than me. Like I want it and need it too, but you know maybe there's less pressure on me, but I'm, unfortunately that doesn't mean the answer is different. You know, that the medicine is, is going to be a tough pill to swallow either way. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to what we were saying earlier. It's just like these promises have been made and we know mathematically they cannot be kept. And there's no, like there's, there is not nearly enough billionaires you can cut in half and redistribute right. to make even 10% of that viable. I mean, it's just, unbelievable amounts of promises that have are going to have to be broken and all we can hope for is kind of build the future of of what is going to give people a, a fair way 
to store and communicate their wealth um, outside of the system. But I, I do think, you know, it, it is very frustrating um, trying to talk to people. And, and so many people, I, I don't blame them for it, but it is really hard. I, it's, there is a small group of people, uh, I think, uh, you and me are in that group of people who are willing to say, okay, this is an interesting idea. It sounds a little bit too good to be true, but I'm just going to like assess its logical properties and just follow the arguments where they go. And people like that are very rare and are what's necessary to start something like this. Um, and I can't imagine being a Bitcoiner in 2012 when there's no quality content. There's only forum post on Bitcoin talk. And you're still trying to parse these arguments out and you're like, wait a second, this could actually work. Um, and so I think that as the, the space progresses and the quality of content and just podcasts like this, um, as they become more accessible and the messages improve and the arguments improve, hopefully we can change more minds. But um, it's really tough to get someone to just open their mind in the first place. Um, and it's not because they're they're dumb or because they're inferior, it's just because most people do not have the time to, like, they adopt a sort of closed mind mentality because there's every person in the world trying to change your mind about everything at all times. Right. And you just can't be open to it all the time. Like, if I tried to go and disprove every conspiracy theory that's being peddled to me, I would go crazy and I would have zero time to do anything I enjoy. So... Um, it, it is very lucky that we are open-minded enough to appreciate Bitcoin and follow its logical premises. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I think that also brings a bunch of crazy people into Bitcoin and it has a whole bunch of effects. But um, ultimately, I think Bitcoin will be something that people choose out of necessity in a more tragic sense than, oh, this is really exciting. Let's just look at these this, this fun new thing that has all these great properties. Yeah. Yeah. What is the atmosphere like, you know, because you hear a lot about what's going on on college campuses and stuff in the U.S. in terms of uh, specifically with socialism and the social justice yeah. stuff. What's your experience been like with, with that kind of stuff? Oh, um, well, I'm at Stanford. I am at one of the greatest institutions in terms of its reputation. And they're all socialist. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm joking in a way, but at the same time, I'm not. Um, and it's sad. Like I'm, I'm taking a politics class right now, and at uh, the graduate school of business at Stanford, um, which is you know your, your classic business school. These are people who've been in finance for a couple of years and then chose to come and party, um, and and get some nice padding for their resume. And you'd think. You know, these are people that understand dollars and cents and they understand um, the importance of markets and economic calculation and distributing resources. And I would say, you know, it, it's like 70 to 80 percent of people are advocating either outright socialism or, um, you know, sort of elizabeth warren style we need corporations that are not based on profits but corporations that are based on a variety of societal goals um such as you know what they're doing for their neighborhood and the environment on a global and local scale and community service building and all that stuff and that's how we measure success of a corporation i mean these are just crazy ideas that you would expect at a business school 
of all places right. to appreciate, um, especially something like Stanford. And it's just, it's just right over their head. I mean, and Man. I, it's, it's so frustrating. And I think it is really a bizarre moment in the sense that politics has taken this very strong ethical turn. So it's not just that, um, you have to, especially on college campuses, it's not just that uh, most people are, um, you know, democratic socialists, um, but it's that it's a presumption on every interaction. And I, I think even if it's 30% of people are more, um, cons not conservative, but, you know, just pro-free market. I, I really see it as like you're either pro-markets or anti-markets. The social side of it, of, of whether or not you're conservative or, or liberal, like I, I see that as a separate thing. But just in terms of economics, um, maybe 30% of people uh, appreciate markets, but it feels like it's 0% because no one even has the courage to speak about it because you just get ripped apart by people just saying that you are, I mean, just the other day, I was one of three people in a class of 60 to defend Milton Friedman saying it's important to calculate uh, corporate profits instead of any other thing, um, because that's how you allocate resources effectively. And um, man, I just got ripped apart in in the court of public opinion for defending just basic market movements. And um, you know, I was I was told that it was because I was sexist and my gender was oh, was bleeding fuck. through my understanding of economics. And, and like it's it sounds. Like, it's almost hard to believe until you're in it, and you're like, holy shit, this is like actually how these people think. Um, and it's, it's just bizarre. And professors um, not only allow it, but they, like, encourage it. Um, and I think that's probably why they're professors instead of actual um, productive members of society. But Do these yeah, people it's... put up, like, a cogent, rational argument when, like, when they're refuting whatever you're saying well it's it's actually really funny because i i made this argument defending milton and uh they said well actually if if you look at companies that you know pursue societal goals it's best for shareholder value and i'm like and, and so it, it's a good thing they're doing this and i'm like you're measuring the that whether or not this is a good idea because it's maximizing shareholder value, which is my whole point. Is <laughs> the only way you can measure this is through shareholder value. <laughs> so, like, you can't like it, it's so strange because the entire argument that they're going against of why we shouldn't be calculating profits this way is is how they're justifying what they're saying is a good idea, but they they can't see the contradiction. Um, and I get it. I get that you want to help people. I really do. Yeah. And it's it it's so compelling to just virtue signal and um talk about how you want to help your community and your neighborhoods and stuff like that, but um just the realization that markets and prices are the best way to do that uh is a really hard pill to swallow and I think in this political climate the stigma associated with just speaking positively about markets uh, is really hard. And I think that also comes down to there's like a semantic shift of the word capitalism is associated with the market dynamics that we have 
uh, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, whereas this is not capitalism at all. This right. is crony capitalism at best and, and really corporate socialism. And that's really hard for people to understand because the word capitalism is associated with what is happening right now. And I, and I think if we didn't have a monetary base that could just be printed and given to whoever stands up in lobbies in Congress, uh, then we could start to see a true free market emerge instead of, you know, privatize the gains and socialize the losses and call that capitalism. It's, it's not, it's, you know, not capitalism in any true sense of the term. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's something that I, you know, I say on Twitter all the time, I try to stress in conversations I have where everyone's running in the wrong direction. They're, they, yeah. they're, they're running towards, they think they're running away from capitalism and towards socialism. They think that's better. Yeah. They need to be running more towards capitalism. Cause like you said, we have right. so, um, crony capitalism or, or uh, social corporatism or whatever, whatever the term you yeah. use, but we yeah. don't have. And the crazy part is, is like what, what we're promoting here is just free markets. It's got yeah. freedom in the fucking name. Like, isn't that yeah. what, isn't that what we all want? Don't we want to, to maximize and optimize for freedom? Cause what does that mean? It means that people get to freely choose what their inputs, what their behavior is. And then, the results of that are what they should be in a, in a like the less manipulation, the better. It's got free in the name, but but people have been so brainwashed to see you know even if you capitalism mainly, but even you know you say free market capitalism to someone and they they think it's evil somehow, you know. And oh, this, totally. This idea of compassion has, you know, this is if you it's almost like today if you're compassionate. You you can be violent against someone else. I mean, this is kind of what uh, you know Antifa and that kind of stuff in the U.S. is about. It's like, well, our compassion for the, the the people that we perceive to be oppressed is is justification for being violent against the people we believe are are responsible for it. Which is, I mean, it's madness and it's really scary. But that seems to be what's going on. Yeah, the rhetorical capture of the word capitalism to describe the status quo. Um, it's just so goddamn powerful because now anytime you go back and read someone like Milton Friedman and he talks about capitalism, then you associate right now, you associate uh, what's happening in political capture in the United States with the same word uh, that's used to describe something completely different because it has two different meanings um, when Bernie uses it and when Milton uses it. And that's just, it's genius and it's terrifying, mm -hmm. and it's such a such a tricky turn of uh, language that um, it makes me feel like it's going to be very hard to reverse it. Because even like even academics, like even the people that are supposedly the people who understand this stuff in business schools at Stanford, aren't <laughs> saying what capitalism is. And that's why I'm saying, know. man, we, we, we yeah. you know, those of us who, uh, well, think and feel the way we do. And we I think we've got to voice these things, you know, yeah. podcasts, videos, books, yeah. articles, all yeah. that kind of stuff. We've we've got to we've got to at least rep the other side of this argument, because there's certainly a lot of noise on the other, uh, you know, on the side that we're we're against. And it's uh, our side is more nuanced. It's more complicated. It requires you know, perhaps more education yeah. and more time and all that kind of stuff. And those are, that's working against us. But 
you know, that's, that's our lot. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, um, I am confident that Bitcoin will save many people, but it certainly won't save everyone. And I think that there is, there is a small group of people, um, that have an open mind that will somehow find their way to Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is, I think, good at, at picking people out and um, resonating with certain types. And at least, expo- like, Bitcoin is something that is known by pretty much everyone, understood by very few. But I think that the people that are some of the brightest and most powerful thinkers uh, that are willing to not accept sort of official narratives that are fed to them, um, it will find them. And I think that that sort of, that that in itself is, is incredibly powerful because you're cherry picking just the best and brightest people in the world uh, to kind of be the initial torchbearers of this new, you know, revolution in, in economic and societal formation. And... That that is crazy, you know. When I when I listen to Bitcoin podcasts and the people that I meet, uh, like yourself and many others, like you can just tell that they're thinking much much larger than whoever is propped up. You know, like I, I go to I'm in Silicon Valley. There's all these speakers at Stanford who come, and you know, they're the lauded professionals of the venture capital space or whatever it might be, and they're idiots. They're all idiots. They don't, they don't understand what they're talking about. They got lucky cashing in on Airbnb and they don't understand, like, you know, they're, they're doing the same shit. They're venture capitalists and they're like, guys, we need to rethink capitalism. It's really not working out. And I'm like, your job is literally to defend the thing that is creating untold amounts of value for people and you don't even know what it is. Um, and then I listen to a Bitcoin podcast with some random dude who's, you know, I don't, I don't even know. Like a, a lot of Bitcoiners were not in positions of power. We're not in any sort of, um, you know, esteemed positions. But they're so ridiculously smart. Yeah. I mean, it just, just blows me away. And it, it makes me super bullish. I was just going to um, say, it's one of the things that gives, like, it's one of the most bullish indicators for me. It's like I whether it's Twitter or on the podcast or whatever, interact with these people. And I'm like, man, like I know there's confirmation bias and all the rest of it, but still like it really seems objectively like these people are just, you know, clear thinking, rational minded, you know, yes, passionate, yes, enthusiastic, but just like these are the people that I want to learn from. Like, you know, it just, it just feels so right. Now that's why, you know, occasionally I say too, like, some people say, "Oh, there's no Bitcoin community." I'm like, "No, fuck that." There's there's a, definitely a Bitcoin community, and it's a it's a dispersed, like-minded. Doesn't mean we're all the same, but I I totally agree. Like, I'm always blown away by the the quality of people that I encounter in this space. Yeah, it is ridiculous, uh, and and so passionate. Like, I, I published the <laughs> deflation piece, um, and you know, of course, my mentions start blowing up with people saying like, "Oh, that's not what deflation is. Deflation is a decrease in prices." Right. And I had to mute my my notifications because there were like four different Bitcoiners just like latched onto this and just kept arguing back and forth and and just like valiantly defending my definition of deflation. <laughs> and like it was it was so like heartwarming to see how toxic. Um, 
but but it's not even toxic. It's just like adamant these people are, and they care so much, and that sort of um, like feeling just can't be replicated, and is is what makes Bitcoin so powerful. It, it reminds me of um, just thinking about open source software and how the reason open source applications can just beat closed source is because the people who are working on it are working on it for free. In other words, they really truly care about using the software correctly yeah. and uh, making good product instead of just like clocking out their time. And Bitcoiners, we're not getting paid to sit on Bitcoin Twitter and argue with each other. I mean, we're ignoring our families. We're, we're not doing the things <laughs> we want to do, right? Yeah. But we're doing it because we really, really care about getting this right, about getting these arguments right, about creating these narratives, about just coming to a, a collective understanding of what this weird thing is that just kind of fell into our lap. And um, that is a form of knowledge uh, creation that is better than any classroom in the country, yeah. in the world, um, because it is truly voluntary and um, you're not restrained by... And you're also not, I think the fact that it's private and the fact that there's a lot of people that are anonymous and they can say whatever they want massively benefits that conversation as well because you're not um, judged by anything other than the force of your arguments. Totally. Um, and that, that's also just mind-blowing how powerful that can be. And it's all in real time and it's nonstop, 24 hours a day, every time zone. It's like, <laughs> it's crazy. You know, I was thinking about it today about... Um, you know, kind of the how the revolutionaries used to kind of hang out in the, the cafes and the coffee shops yeah. in France or wherever and kind of like ch exchange ideas and then hatch their plans and whatever, you know, they ended up doing. You know, Bitcoin is our revolutionary cafe. Like it's where all of these like-minded people are getting together and just like smashing ideas together, trying to learn from each other, as you said, supporting each other because – we know, and it's for a cause. Like we don't know ex like the precise cause yet. Like we know what we want to change the monetary standard. We want Bitcoin, but you know I don't yeah. think we we know the full picture yet. But we all know that this you know we want to be on this ship together, and we want to be. One of my favorite um, little gifts is um, the one from the movie Three Hundred. You know yeah. the one where it's like he points. Where he walks through and he's like. <laughs> no, he point. I, he, yeah, that no, that, that one's good too. Is that from three hundred, or that's from the second know. one? Maybe. I, I, I think. <laughs> I remember. I remember okay. that one, like when the price was pumping, like it was yeah. six, seven. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the one I'm talking about is uh, he's talking to the Athenians like before a fight, right? He's like, "Hey, you, what do you do?" He's like, "I'm a farmer," and he's like, "What do you do?" He's like, "I'm a sheep herder or whatever." And what about you? It's like, I'm a whatever. Because the Athenians are like, we have 10,000 more soldiers than you. Oh, yeah. And, and then he goes to his 300 and he goes like, like what are you guys? And they're just like, huddle, huddle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, fucking, I fucking love that shit. It's so true. I'm, I'm a Bitcoiner first and everything else second yeah. uh, at this point. Um, because it just, it creates a form of community and... Man, it is unlike any other group I've been a part of. And it also just speaks to how inadequate our academic institutions are. This is the biggest shift in economic, political, uh, sociological, 
uh, historical thought, um, and none of them know anything about it. It's not on their radar. It's not like even at Stanford, the the tech haven, the place that's supposed to know it all. Like uh, the cryptocurrency class, I showed up to it, and it started with the professor pulling up Coin Market Cap and going, "Well, there's Bitcoin and there's Lightspeed and there's uh, Ethereum," uh, and yeah. I'm like. Oh, shit. <laughs> and so I ended up teaching the course because I talked to the professor afterwards and I was like, you know, let's, we should, you know, it's, it, we should really talk about how these things work. And I think I have a better understanding of you do. Um, and, and I was, you know, super nice to him and right. he totally admitted that he just kind of fell into teaching this and didn't really know what he was talking about. Um, so, you know, we had a really good time, uh, reading some of Stop into Crips articles about how the network works, what a node is, how the transactions are processed. So we had Safedine's Bitcoin standard for our reading. But, you know, these people are clue. I mean, it also has major implications for law, which is what I'm studying. Mm-hmm. There is no good academic understanding of it. And I, I think it's for a couple reasons. I think it's because it challenges academic uh, assumptions and, you know, as much as we think that academics are the people who are on top of their stuff, they're really just tenured and, and like to say the same thing over and over and over again, yeah. regardless of whether or not they're right or wrong. And they're also, it is, it's really bizarre because when I think about what I know, when, and I'm sure you're the same way, when you think about the things you, you know and you've learned, you don't think about it in discrete categories. <laughs> you think about them as your collective understanding of the world and that encompasses a variety of different subjects and that allows you to appreciate different events in history or different changes such as Bitcoin. Well, academic institutions are siloed like echo chambers where you only speak to other people in your own silo. All of your work is reviewed by people in your own silo. And especially for social sciences, I, I can understand this more for the hard sciences. Like, you know, maybe chemistry is only related to chemistry and we don't care if the quantum physicist peer reviews it. But it seems very important for the legal, historical, sociological, and economic fields to talk to each other and to collaborate and to come up with collective models for understanding the world instead of, all right, here's the best model we could come up with in each of our separate siloed categories. And we're not really even in philosophy is the biggest one for me, and, and keeping all these things separate and take the insights of, of one and not patching it over to the other. Um, I think that's the really beautiful thing about the Austrian school is you can tell that Mises and Hayek were deep historical and um, philosophical thinkers and that Mises and human action has this, you know, the first couple of chapters uh, I'm a philosopher. I studied philosophy in college, and I immediately was just shocked at how deep his philosophical uh, foundation was for the way he articulates how humans interrelate, and that is um, something that's not in any sort of you know traditional classical economics. This like understanding of human subjectivity, and that's a, a deep philosophical insight and something that forms his entire understanding of voluntary subjective interactions and subjective theory of value and all of those things you need the philosophy 
to understand it. And mm. having this hierarchy, uh, top-down, centralized, siloed, echo chamber approach to knowledge is just going to leave you with stagnation. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad they don't even notice Bitcoin because it just shows how painfully inadequate they are for telling us anything about what the world should be like. Yeah, and it also shows you how much ego, and whether that's expressed in arrogance or whether it's expressed yeah. in insecurity, you know, both manifestations, um, how much it can blind you to things, right? So for a lot of the people you just mentioned, you know, their knowledge of whatever, you know, they're teaching, for example, that's a comfort. And that comfort, you know, is not only part of their personality, it's not only, in, you know, their income, but it just, it makes them feel like they have a grip on things, you know, and we're all yeah. insecure in some capacity and we all kind of yearn for that comfort and that 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 confidence in who we are and what we're doing and what i you know again what i love about you know prime the most people that interact on bitcoin and bitcoin twitter and stuff is like you know n none of us are perfect obviously and we all have our you know our quirks and we like to get in you know fights and whatever whatever the whatever it is yeah, but totally. we we have our ego in check enough or at least we recognize the value of of keeping a, staying humble enough to have an open aperture to learn right so that in, in whatever angle it's coming from the philosophical the scientific the historical whatever like we're going to let it in because our desire to understand this thing trumps our desire for egotistical comfort or recognition or confidence or anything like that yeah, one million percent. And that's something that I think is definitely a virtue. I, I don't know if this is where it came from, but I think we can see something really similar in just the open source community in general. And that the people that you are, um, that are in charge of maintaining um, a repository or something like that, you want to have people that are deciding about something, if it's merged or not. You want them to be very humble and in their approach, you want them to be very talented, certainly, but you want them to be humble and not completely just driven by what they think is right, because otherwise the entire open source model breaks down because you're not adding new ideas. Um, if someone is arrogant, then they would say, oh, you made this thing that improves my software, but I'm not going to merge it because it's not what I made. And I, I can't handle admitting the fact that my software wasn't perfect. And it is this really interesting uh, interplay between, you know, clearly the only reason that people you know, maintain these repositories is because they like the validation of doing something good for the community and, and getting that sort of ego boost in a way. But at the same time, they have to be very humble enough to accept the fact that um, their ideas could be flawed and that needs to be updated in some some better way and i think we see that a lot from community members in bitcoin which is people the only reason people are on bitcoin twitter is so they can get validation and other people can hear their message but at the same time they're super open to criticism and arguing and changing their minds i've seen multiple like so many times on bitcoin twitter someone gets in a really long argument and they're like oh good point that was actually i hadn't thought about it like that and <laughs> That's very interesting. I had, you know, just not considered it. And that's so powerful it and is. just completely absent from any uh, 
modern political discussions. I know. I was just going to say, isn't it crazy how rare that is? Like you don't often hear like two people have a, a heated debate and then one side go, oh, yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I didn't, didn't consider that. Yeah. OK. You know, I'll I'll integrate that into my way yeah. of thinking now. It is crazy to even it, it's it's so funny that just the concept of a Repu- like a Republican and Democrat sitting across the table from each other and having a, a reasoned discussion at a coffee shop. I mean, that is like a laughable idea. Yeah. Um, the concept that people with disagreeing ideas um, in, in a world where politics has become ethics is just impossible, truly impossible in a way that it doesn't seem like it should be. And it seems like we just say, well, you know, I think this is the best way to provide health care. Oh, I think this is the best way to provide health care. Oh, let's let's sort of argue. Like, what are the merits of a you know, giving healthcare in this way or that? And you know, it seems pretty straightforward. You could have that argument, but um, increasingly, those sorts of discussions just cannot happen. And it, it was funny last night. Ben Shapiro was on campus, and he's you know kind of the conservative firebrand type. And you know, there was this massive protest outside of all these people. Um, just saying that he shouldn't be here. He shouldn't be allowed to speak. It was, you know, just so offensive to them that he was even allowed to set foot on campus. And then he spends his entire time talking. I I wasn't at the actual uh, thing, but I I read some of the things he said um, this morning. And the whole time he's shitting on the alt-right and talking about, you know, that the Republican party has been infiltrated by white nationalists and they're despicable and we shouldn't we should throw them out and we shouldn't interact with them and all this stuff and it's like it's it's not even that he's saying things that are offensive he's actually saying that racism like he spent the whole time saying racism is bad essentially mm-hmm. and that it's it's toxic to formulating smart effective policies and he still is just like you know just uh Everyone just sits around protesting his, even his appearance, his ability to even voice these ideas, um, instead of just listening to them and arguing against them, and you know having a debate. Well, that's the madness, you know, and it's crazy how many people today are, and I, I think I heard this term first from uh, Peterson, but I mean it's probably been said many times, yeah. but. Being ideologically possessed is seems like a, a very real thing, right? It just it takes over your own rational appraisal, decision making, you know, reasoning, yeah. all that kind of stuff, and you just default to whatever the ideology, as far as you understand it, would say. You know, I saw another one recently. I think it was um, Dave Rubin. He was uh, yeah. d- doing a talk somewhere, and these people just got up and started chanting whatever just trying to drown him out or whatever and mm-hmm. he was literally like okay yeah to- you know okay you got the floor like what would you like to say would love to have a discussion with you nobody here is yelling at you i'm not going to say anything mean just tell me like what's your point like what let's have a discussion for god's sakes let's have a discussion and he did that for like you know five minutes and they just kept doing their thing and it's like it must be so maddening to these people because they're just like look i i i get it you disagree with some of the things that i'm saying fine let can like the only recourse we have here the only 
recourse is going to lead to a better outcome than our current situation is if we we have a chat about it like come on let's let's sit totally. down at, let's sit down at the table but you know that and i think this speaks to a much deeper thing probably beyond the scope of our conversation here but why yeah. do people so easily become ideologically possessed and i think it it goes back to you know what i mentioned before and just a profound underlying insecurity that pr- probably everybody feels and then you mm-hmm. you you patch that up through the associations you create and the things that you believe in and the ideologies that you attach yourself to and the people that so the people that support them and represent them because it gives you a sense of comfort call it tribalism call it whatever but it just oh yeah it, it helps dissolve that insecurity and gives you some at least a perception of certainty and you're willing to uh defend that pretty much at all costs and you know it takes a very enlightens the wrong word but I'm not, it's not the right word. It's not coming to me right now, but it, it takes that and an individual who's comfortable with the being uncomfortable because they yeah. realize the importance of seeing things clearly, seeking, you know, the greatest approximation of truth that they can, and then speaking that and having that being an ongoing process, not just one that you, you know, you find a piece of truth or you find a piece of comfort and you stay there. You know, it takes a very, and this again, this is why I love people in Bitcoin. But it takes a yeah. a very uh, courageous person to constantly yeah. be letting go of the things from which they derive comfort in order to come to a greater approximation of of truth. And so, you know, so many people just, um, yeah, they they don't have the courage to do that. And as a result, you know, that insecurity manifests in so many. Um, detrimental behaviors i would say yes i i i um just was recently thinking about this because i in in college i really enjoyed taoism and sort of that sort of you know i'm not a religious person in any way but i think that it's a very valuable um way of approaching it's it's sort of like a method for approaching the world versus like a set of truths Mm -hmm. um and i think that there's something very valuable in that approach of you know, taking that sort of view that there isn't, like the real world is messy. And the reason people love ideologies is because it tells you there's an objective truth, there's a real good and bad here. And here it's it's so simple. It's these people, they're the bad people. Mm-hmm. And these people, they're the good people. And the real world is much, much more complicated than that. Um, and ideology is a way to avoid that messiness that can create a lot of mental discomfort. And I think that the Taoist approach of sort of like appreciating just the flows of society and ideas and, you know, just being receptive to different forms of thought is really hard, but super valuable and actually like very much related to Bitcoin's uh, economic foundation. And the idea of the subjective theory of value is this very, very humble approach where he said, you know, economists always want to say the real cost of some, the real value of something is its cost. The real value of something is uh, the labor that's put into it. Um, the Austrian view is these labels are impossible. These discrete definitions that we pretend to uh, derive are impossible. And all we can really say is, it's up to whoever's it's it's up to the eye of the beholder and um that is a 
a brave thing. It's a difficult thing to admit uh, your lack of knowledge. Um, but ultimately, that's what you have to do, I think, to create a thriving voluntary society because your only other recourse uh, when you start to believe in truth, in, in objective, enforceable truth, is coercion and violence. And I think that that's always unacceptable um, as a way of organizing society. Um, so it's 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 a, a messy world that is, it, it does take courage, it takes patience, it takes humility, and all those things are in record short supply right now. And it's probably because, um, and, you know, thinking about the sovereign individual and thinking about the, the message it's imparting, which is, you know, there's moments in civilization where a ideology becomes so powerful uh, that it starts to consume the productive elements of society, that the, the church could become so all-pervasive um, that you know, it suddenly wants to regulate every single aspect of your lives. It wants to uh, siphon away as much wealth as possible because it, this ideology has become so pervasive that eventually it crumbles under its own weight. And I think that, you know, regardless of which side of the aisle you're looking at, there is an all-pervasive belief in the objective uh, truth of we need a very big nation-state to secure our future. And I think that we are coming to the end of that ideology, and I think that there is a lot of tension and, um, you know, just desperation as we feel that this is sort of crumbling under its own weight. And I think that it will be a very strange day when that ideology starts to melt away because the reality of the situation is those promises are being broken the belief that we just need more regulators is an impossible fantasy and counterproductive. All of that is hard to imagine, but eventually it will collide with reality. And, you know, if it's two years from now, two months from now, 20 years from now, it's really, you know, impossible to say. And anyone who does say they know, you know, you should run the other way. But um, we know that it is can't go on forever. And I hope that Bitcoin will be a foundational text in the way that uh, the Constitution of the Declaration of Independence was in grounding a new understanding of human rights and humanity. Um, and, you know, hopefully what the Constitution and Declaration did for, you know, understanding people have these sort of natural rights that are not granted to them by some higher power, but they're innate. Um, perhaps Bitcoin will do that in the sense that um, you know, value is subjective and your ability to store your time and energy should not be anything but your own. Mm -hmm. And I think that alone is just a tremendous boon to so social welfare and uh, human flourishing. So I I'm, I'm optimistic. I totally agree. And I <laughs> took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to say I'm optimistic <laughs> too. And a lot, a, a lot of is made of this and like we've we've been saying, you know, it's it's still happening on a small scale, but we all like I'm always amazed the people I speak to when they tell me um how much they've changed as a person as a result of being in Bitcoin. And like yeah. on the surface it just sounds so absurd. It's like you 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 bought some digital money and you became this like way better version of yourself. Like 
the fuck is that? But it's 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 like almost a universal, not quite, but like every, so many people I talk to, and if 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 it can do that, then you know that gives me hope because what we're talking about and what we're talking about ego and insecurity and ideology and stuff that's going to require like some pretty fundamental changes in how you view yourself and the, the type of person that you want to try to be in the world. And it seems like this phenomenon that this, this digital fire that we're all dancing around is actually causing people to change in that kind of a way and in profound ways that, you know, seemingly very few other things that they've encountered in their lives inspired them to change to that degree. So that, yeah. give, that gives me a tremendous amount of optimism and hope. Yeah, I've definitely seen that in my own life, and it's it's really been miraculous. And I, I think that the shift from pessimism to optimism is huge um, and allows a form of detachment as well uh, instead of arguing over the scraps and being a part of that and trying to figure out which side do I want to be for in this weird tug of war that I feel we're in. You can so just kind of step back and say, oh, I don't have to be a part of this, and actually that's just what's going to have to happen and there's going to be the tug of war, but eventually we're kind of beyond that tug of war. And that's really powerful. Um, and I feel like, I mean, for me, Bitcoin has just changed so many parts of my life. I feel like, um, just from my own personal, like health perspective, I, I care a lot more about my health. Um, I just am in so much better shape. Like I <laughs> never, went to the gym or anything and and now i'm like working out you know maybe so, every day or so at least me, five times a week like why is that do you know like do you know what inspired that change was it conscious like you're like ah oh, you know all these people on bitcoin twitter eating meat and you know i got to do some shit here or like do you know when that switched and what caused it there is a motivate like it is so motivating to have sort of an optimistic viewpoint in life. It just makes you want to do stuff and do things with yourself. Uh, it wasn't even the meat eating stuff. I actually thought that was really crazy in the beginning. And now I, <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> say I'm a carnivore, but I get my proteins. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, but yeah, just, there is there is something so uplifting and motivating, and I felt like I had to go work out, it was, or I had to go, you know, not just go to the gym, but you know, run the hill and, or you know, go on the trails around campus and stuff like that. And it's weird. Um, I, I can't really explain it, but there is something that when you're playing video game, like I used to play video games all the time. Uh, my life before uh, Bitcoin was. Uh, you know, I'm in law school. I'm doing the least amount for maximum returns. That's kind of my been my approach to all school has just been like do the least amount possible to just like do well. And I think a lot of people just kill themselves and aren't very productive. And so I just, you know, I'm here at law school and I just, you know, study like an hour or something like that or not even and then just go back to playing video games or just just being a potato basically and just waiting for the next stage of my life oh okay in three years i'm gonna have a job i'm just gonna kick around until then and not really care not you know like there is no motivation and i think that's because it felt like in terms of broader societal uh, history and and movements that 
we kind of had reached this permanent plateau or malaise or stagnation. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's just going to be more of the same just bullshit um, things that are kind of fed to me through various communication platforms. And no one is thinking in a big way. And the people that are thinking big, supposedly, are really just, you know, in this sort of eternal tug of war that doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And um, everything just seems kind of fucked. And I don't really see a way out. And suddenly when Bitcoin is like, oh, there's this really new thing and it could actually not just be a cool idea, which I think a lot of uh, the gold bug types kind of paint them into this, you know, unrealistic optimism. Like there's gold lost a hundred years ago. I don't know why you're holding on to it, but it lost and it'll lose again and it'll always lose because it's broken because it's centralized by third parties. Yeah, you're going to lose. And, you know, that seemed just sort of like fatalistic, like, you know, I'm not interested in that. And suddenly I find Bitcoin. I'm like, wait a second. This is actually much bigger. This is. Oh, my God, I'm in the middle of a historical moment. (laughs) And so suddenly I'm like interested in history. I didn't care about history. Um, I it felt like it didn't pertain to my life because we were kind of like post historical. We were in this sort of like, you know, nothing really changes anymore. It's every day more of the same and recognizing myself in this like broader historical context. It's just crazy. It it just, I, it's, it's hard to even, and, and I'm sure you felt the same thing. Like you can't even really put it into words, but it is just earth shattering. (laughs) And um, well, I think it's it, it, it becomes this this thing that is pulling you forward. And it's basically, you know, the, the download that you're getting is now there's something available where the more fit you make yourself, the more benefit to be derived personally for you from this thing and the more yeah. you can contribute to it you know, to, to it's in its fullness. You know, think about yeah. think of someone who's like, you know, cripplingly depressed right they don't have the motivation to go to the gym to eat well to you know refine their you know to educate themselves so that they're more uh, employable blah 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 all this kind of stuff because they have a deep feeling that no matter what it's not going to make me happy it's not going to give me satisfaction so what's the point and i think all of us Maybe we, you know, not because of depression, but because of the the landscape of the world that you just described, we we felt that to some degree. We're like, what's the point, really? And now some of that was just bullshit on our side because we still live in a world where there's tons of opportunity. We can do lots sure. of cool shit. But, you know, on a macro scale, it's like if you really think that things are, are, are pretty fucked up, then it it takes the motivation away from you. And you're like, ah, I might as well play video games. I might as well do this and just try to carve out a little bit of fun for myself. But once yeah. this new horizon opens up that that you that you start seeing like, wow, like there is something worthwhile to contribute to that's drawing me forward that is represents a horizon of almost infinite possibilities. Well, that's something to get out of the bed for. That's something to like, you know, make myself as fucking fit as possible to go and chase. And by the way, all these other people that are chasing it with me, yeah. They're fit as fuck too, so I better, you know, if I if I want to hang with that crew, I better I better get myself in shape. And I don't mean just like physically, but you know, in all all capacities. Yeah. 
yeah, like min- like uh, mental fitness. And just like I-, I suddenly just was talking to different Bitcoiners and stuff and realized I have no understanding of history. Like I technically sat through the classes, but I certainly didn't appreciate any of it. I didn't understand or want to remember it. And suddenly I'm like genuinely curious as to how things played out in the past because it gives me some sort of like lantern and whatever we're going through. And it is, it is a really big, I I think you're definitely on, on the motivation point of getting yourself out of bed. Like what I was living before Bitcoin was a very individualistic focus on how to maximize my life or my returns or, or whatever, you know, get a nice cushy job or whatever. I cared about that a lot. I cared about, um, you know, going to a good school and things like that. But it was an extremely individual focus on I'm just going to maximize my own personal benefit and just, you know, like call it hedonism or, or whatever it is. But it was very myopic mm-hmm. in how I wanted to live my life. And now I can't stop thinking about how this will change society and what am I doing in this moment to, you know, like let people know or help build the intellectual or whatever foundations for this shift and feeling like you're plugged into something much bigger than just like, how can I get the biggest paycheck possible? Right. Um, How can I enjoy my life and uh, experience as much, pleasure as possible and it's just so meaningful all of a sudden and addictive um i I think we all want this to succeed so much you know for a variety of reasons but we we also perhaps subconsciously perhaps consciously know that people are going to be looking at us as a proxy for the quality of this thing that we're promoting obviously right the medium is always the message to some degree right so we're the medium for the message of bitcoin and we we know that like if we're pieces of shit and we're talking about this great thing that we want people to get into, they're they're not going to because we're we're going to be discrediting it by the vessel that's carrying the message, right? So I think at, at least to some degree we think like we gotta you know we gotta tight, tighten up our shit and be you know be the type of people that are worthy of representing something that we think has so much potential for for positive change and 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 benefit for both ourselves and everyone else. And if that's the case, then we're going to have to, you know, be a bit more excellent in many domains. Yeah, it, it's so weird because I I think that's, it's, it's, it's so true and it's also unconscious because I, I don't, I don't go to the gym thinking, oh, I got to be of ripped course, so I can represent. <laughs> but at the same time, it definitely is part of like, I want to be worthy of whatever this is. And if that means I'm going to stay in good shape and I also use the like working out or, you know, going for a run or whatever as just a way to learn more because it's such a great time to fully immerse your mind in a podcast. And that is just, it's helped me so much. I mean, I've just like crushed like probably thousands of hours at this point of just content that, I did not like you could not have paid me to care about this stuff a year and a half ago. It is mind boggling how powerful it is and how can something that powerful that is truly just pulling people that strongly to 
pulling me to carry this torch. How in the world can that fail? There's no way. No way. Um, I, so, share, I share that sentiment. Yeah. And I think about it all the time, too, because I'm like, oh, my God, I am so, like bullish into this thing like i'm a such a believer like is it yeah. possible that that like this is not real or this is not yeah and with each passing day you know that the possibility in my mind gets lower and lower um, i know and and even then i see what i'm doing and i see people doing 10 times what i'm doing <laughs> and i'm like how is that even possible like just people just working tirelessly on this stuff and it, it's there's always another Bitcoiner to outdo your dedication sure. to the craft. It is it's crazy. Speaking it's of speaking of which, um, what uh, you know, I heard you say in a couple of pods now that you know you go through classes at law school, but you're always thinking about this stuff. You can't get it off your mind. What yeah. you know? Do you beyond the writing, which obviously a lot of people appreciate and it's great. Uh, what's coming up for you or what kind of visions of, for your engagement in this, this thing that we've been discussing? Do you have any kind of clarity around that? So, um, you know, I am, I'm a, not a technical person. I'm a legal person and it's still very early for me to, for, for any like good positions, I feel like that really use my abilities to, to kind of form yet. So I'm still just waiting for the industry to mature, I guess. Um, what I'm doing in the short term is I will be working at uh, Cato, at their Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, doing monetary theory research, basically, uh, about what properties are most important for a uh, new alternative monetary system to um, beat out an incumbent. So what are the monetary properties that would cause someone to drop what they're using and use something different? Um, so that is what I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for because Cato is, um, a good place. They've got a lot of smart people there, but they don't have any Bitcoiners. Right. And, um, you know, so, so hopefully something good comes out of that and some research comes out of that, that I'll be able to share. Um, but in terms of my personal life, I'll just be, uh, working at a nice place in New York, uh, a nice law firm and stacking sats and, um, <laughs> You know, in some ways, I feel like the most important thing you can do is just buy Bitcoin. Like, yeah. I don't think there's anything to. It, it's probably the most important thing for Bitcoin's success to continue is just like hodling yeah. and buying and worry about the conviction and the education those, afterwards. Yeah. Just fucking yeah. get your hands on some. Yeah. And, um, We'll see. Anything else that's, that's down the line, I'll definitely announce. But right now, it's just, you know, hodling. And I'll, I'm definitely going to be putting out some more articles, but I'm not quite sure what I want to write about yet. I have some ideas, but usually, I don't know if I like them enough. Um, like, they'll, they'll pretty much just, like, I'll get so annoyed with someone arguing with me about something. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to create an article that I can link to and just not have to deal with this anymore. Right. So, uh, Why New York? Do you just want to be there? Uh, it's, it's a legal capital of the world and, um, it's where the best opportunities are, I think. So, um, it's, it's definitely not my, my first pick. I'd rather be in Austin if I had to pick a place. That'd be cool, um, man. Austin there's, seems there's like a there's a lot of cool stuff going on down there. I know. So many Bitcoiners. I, I've been, I worked there two summers ago and it's just fantastic. Yeah. And now that it's like a Bitcoin hub, it's even more enticing, but, uh. Yeah, I'll 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 be in New York for a bit and then 
you know, head for greener pastures. Cool. Um, do you have a bit of extra time for the rapid fire questions or I know. Let's I, do it. Cool. What's up guys. That's the end of the open conversation portion of my interview with Connor. If you want to hear a little bit more from him, the rapid fire episodes available now. It's about 15 minutes long. That's it. See ya.